Hey, Undark listeners, happy February. I'm your host, Kasha Patel. In today's episode, we're talking about how people are reducing their carbon footprint after death. Plus, a new kind of teenage rebellion, kids who go against their parents to vaccinate themselves. But first, I want to talk about a nasty three-letter word that is very popular this time of the year, the flu. Last year, 80,000 people in the U.S. died from the flu. That's higher than the number of soldiers who died in the Vietnam War. And while the flu is worse for the very young and the very old, last year's season was the first to be labeled high severity across all age groups. Thankfully, this year is considered mild. But what does mild really mean? Mild still means so far in February, we've had 19,000 deaths due to flu. And so in most settings, people wouldn't think that's mild. That's Dr. Nancy Messonnier from the CDC. She's the director of the National Center for Immunization and Respiratory Diseases. Now, it seems strange to me that we still have kind of large numbers for flu outbreaks nowadays. We can keep diseases like measles and polio at bay with a couple of childhood shots of universal vaccine. Why haven't we figured that out with the flu? Why do I have to go in every year for a different flu vaccine? Well, here's the short answer. It's an especially tricky kind of bug. It's actually the flu virus that's the problem. So the flu virus is a new virus every year, and we basically have a new season every year. So finding a vaccine is much more difficult because of how frequently the virus changes and the potential to have dramatic changes, which is what can lead to a pandemic. The flu virus, unlike the ones that cause measles or polio, comes in several different varieties. Scientists use two proteins on the shell of a flu virus to classify it hemagglutinin, and neuraminidase. These two proteins have several different subtypes. Then those subtypes can be broken down even more into different strains. And the exact kind of virus going around changes every single year. Earlier this month at the American Association for the Advancement of Science Conference, Dr. Messonnier sat down with several other flu researchers and discussed the challenges of creating a flu vaccine. I talked to John Shiver, the Senior Vice President of Global Vaccine Research and Development at the pharmaceutical company Sanofi Pasteur, who also participated in the press conference. Flu is kind of a paradox. It changes. It's a moving target from year to year, uh, which, of course, you know, the vaccines uh, need to keep up with that. Now, on the other hand, it's kind of a simple virus because there's only really 10 components or proteins that comprise the virus. Only one of these is the primary vaccine target that we build vaccines around, the so-called hemagglutinin protein. Shiver said starting in 2009, researchers gained some valuable insight into the structure of the hemagglutinin protein. The protein has two components, a head and a stem. Now, vaccines prime our immune system by giving it a target to remember. For the flu vaccine, that target is on the head of the hemagglutinin. But the heads change every year, and as a result, so do our flu vaccines. But Shiver and other researchers are also interested in the second component of the hemagglutinin protein, the stem, because it might just be the key to a universal vaccine. Unlike the protein head, the stem remains pretty much the same for each type of virus. If scientists can figure out how to create a vaccine that targets the stem or another stable structure that all flu viruses share, they may be able to create a single universal vaccine. A universal vaccine would be a holy grail. You take it once at childhood and it covers you for several seasons or maybe forever. Developing a universal vaccine, though, is still in the very early stages. A universal flu vaccine is an important goal. It is possibly achievable, 
and, and certainly a lot of work going towards that. But even short of that goal, a more broadly protective that might protect across multiple seasons would have tremendous impact and value and would be a big step forward, I think, for, uh, you know, for, for flu vaccines overall. And I think there's also a value on perhaps having improved seasonal vaccine. There, there are certainly things to explore to have uh, uh, potentially an improved seasonal as well as a more broadly protective vaccine. And time will tell which of these actually might emerge and which might have emerged first. Companies are already finding ways to make current seasonal vaccines better, especially in populations aged 65 and older, which are the most vulnerable to the flu. Sanofi has produced a high-dose flu vaccine for older populations. Compared to a regular-dose flu shot, it has four times more antigens, which is the part of the vaccine that helps build up immunity against the virus in your body. The vaccine was 24% more effective at preventing the flu in that age group than the standard vaccine. Another company called Sycorus created a vaccine that protects against the flu, but also includes some ingredients to help boost the immune system for those 65 and older. In an observational study, it was 63% more effective than regular dose run-of-the-mill flu shots. So maybe right now we don't have a universal vaccine, probably not even in five years. But Shiver and Messonnier do believe that we will see major improvements for seasonal vaccines. I think five years is probably a good estimate for a major step forward, but we're not going to have the one single vaccine all taken care of in five years. That's a much longer endeavor. Incremental progress is still great. Even small improvements in the effectiveness of vaccine can prevent countless deaths, hospitalizations, and occurrence of disease every year. So we shouldn't just shoot for the stars. We should be happy with those small improvements too. Now, until we find that universal cure, remember to keep taking your seasonal flu vaccines. Yes, getting a vaccine every year is a pain, but it is also the most effective way to fight illnesses associated with the flu. It reduces your chances of getting the flu by 40 to 60 percent, and it also makes it less likely people around you will catch it. And that is persuasive enough for me. Have you ever thought about how big your carbon footprint will be after you die? More and more Americans are looking into green burials, which is part of the fast-growing natural burial industry. Today we're going to find out what exactly is a green burial and why so many people are choosing them. Here's Randy Scott Carroll reporting for Undark. It's dust to dust. You know, it's what's happening to me. I'll be buried. I'll go back into stardust. And with Jackie Wilson in her living room in Silver Lake, New Jersey. Yeah, I I don't like the end. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm resistant to the end, I think. I don't want to leave it. Jackie is on hospice here. The lights are off, but the big window lets in a soft glow, and she can see the lake from her hospital bed. As she nears the end of her life, she says she's chosen to do things a little differently. I'll be having a green burial in the forest with a little stone that comes from a field that I can have carved with a little name. Green burials like the one Jackie just mentioned are on the rise in the U.S., with cemeteries reporting a big increase in demand. So I wanted to find out what is a green burial exactly, and 
Why are we choosing them? Yeah, I mean, this really is, this really is a movement. I mean, uh, it's a cultural change. It's a dreary day in southern New Jersey as Ed Bigsby gives me a tour of the grounds where Jackie will be buried. He's the owner of Steelmantown Cemetery, where natural deer trails lead to one gravesite after another. Some graves with no identification at all. Uh, What's the decision behind having it not marked? You know, it's just, I, I, it's just a personal decision. I just have people who say, you know, I don't want a marker. Green burials or natural burials cover a wide range of options, from planting seed-impregnated biodegradable urns to having your remains turned into artificial reefs to help restore aquatic habitats. To set itself apart, Steelman Town has chosen a simple yet traditional approach to their burials. Using modest pine caskets or burial shrouds, there's no embalming fluids, no concrete vaults, and the gravesite is dug by hand, often with the family's help. Ed says it's very healing for the families to be so hands-on. We're going back and we're allowing the family to be a major part of the process. I mean, we're allowing them to uh, care for their loved one in a way that is, has been kind of lost in the last hundred years. You know, it really, it really changes the whole game. Eventually, Ed shows me a fresh gravesite. There's a mound of dirt covered with leaves and twigs from around the forest. I'll admit, a sense of peace comes over me in a way I didn't expect. And then, as Ed begins telling me all the ways he hopes to grow his cemetery in the future, I'm hooked. Why not make that into a beautiful butterfly garden? Why not put in a trail system, allow it to grow up with native grasses and flowers, bring in a naturalist educator, bring in school groups or different groups to appreciate the history, appreciate the nature? Like a lot of folks, I try to be a pretty environmentally conscious person. And so, yeah, I've wondered, how could that continue even after my death? And in fact, a survey by the National Funeral Directors Association found that over half of Americans are also looking to reduce their environmental impact when it comes to their own funeral. It's almost like a reciprocal relation between culture and nature. We now return to nature what we took from nature. It's, kind of, it, it, it's a sacrifice. It's kind of you know, paying a debt to nature. This is Antonius Robin. He's an anthropologist at Utrecht University in the Netherlands and the editor of Death, Mourning, and Burial, an anthology on how cultures have viewed and processed death throughout history. Robin says natural burials are really nothing new. He mentions the Zoroastrians in India. So you have these towers and, uh, in, in India, and you have hundreds of, of vultures sitting around them, and then they leave a body there, and then these vultures come. That is a natural burial, you see, but, but it, it would be forbidden in this country or in the United States. So both cases you have natural burials, but they're always natural burials under very specific conditions. So you could With modern environmental concerns today, he says it makes sense that green burials would start to have their own movement, but that it doesn't tell the whole story. Because of this movement of natural burial, in a way, you know, if you take the long, you know, if you take centuries of development of what's being done with the body, it's taking people taking the power back over their own bodies and the bodies of their loved ones. Sovereignty over the body, he thinks, is the biggest factor for this growing trend towards more natural burials. In fact, that same survey by the National Funeral Directors Association found that for Americans, desire for religion to be a part of the rituals and death is at an all-time low, below 40%. And, according to Pew Research Center, our confidence in the government is at a historic low as well, around 18%. It's with this in mind that Robin says people are beginning to question the way things have been. See, so, 
So this could be also, you know, start of a kind of a rebellion of, of taking back control over ourselves. Through this conversation, it becomes clear that this movement towards places like Steelmantown feels more like a political and cultural statement of who we are and about who we want to be. About finding new meaning in a world full of growing uncertainty in our long-held institutions. So, whether it's a cultural rebellion, a tower in India, an extension of your environmental passion, or just a new and helpful way for families to mourn the loss of their loved one, he says we can't escape the fact that how we choose to bury our dead says as much about who we are and our current values than anything else. Burials are always cultural. Burials always have meaning for people, and culture is about meaning. You know, everybody has to die of something, sometime, someplace. In, and the way I'm directing is my own personal way. Back in Jackie's home, she begins to tell me stories from her life, of what it was like as a doctor trying to make it in the 60s. And as a lesbian too, something she had to hide for a long time. Her partner is now with her in these last few days. She tells me, as a doctor, she would have patients that would come to her with anxieties, often about death. She would tell them that sometimes the best way to ease those anxieties is to focus on the meaning we make for ourselves and with our loved ones here in this life. Enjoy a piece of fruit together. You know, it could be a organic peach that you took out of a brown bag after two days. And it was really good and juicy. You know, share something like that with each other. Heading back to talk about vaccines again, Jane Roberts wrote a piece for Undark magazine on teenagers who go against their parents' wishes and vaccinate themselves. The piece went viral, no pun intended. So we brought Jane in to learn more. Interviewing her is Seth Manukin. Seth is a journalist, author, and director of MIT's graduate program in science writing. Take it away, Seth. It is my absolute pleasure to welcome to the podcast Jane Roberts, the deputy editor of Undark, who earlier this month wrote a really phenomenal article called Coming of Age Unvaccinated that looked at the issue of, of vaccines in a really original and, and new light. She examined it from the perspective of teenagers whose parents decided not to vaccinate them, who now are reconsidering that and in some cases going ahead and choosing to get vaccinated. This is a topic that is near and dear to my heart. My last book, The Panic Virus, was about the anti-vaccine movement um, and how the misinformation about vaccines has spread over the years and why it has remained so persistent in spite of all the evidence showing that not only are, are vaccines safe, but they're incredibly important to protect against infectious diseases. Jane, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Seth. So my first question is, what brought you to this story? It's a, it's a unique angle, and it's one that you really don't see. So I'm curious about how you, you came up with this. I came across a, I think it was a, a tweet where somebody had said, 
Apparently, teenagers on Reddit are asking how to get vaccinated. So I talked to a couple of the teenagers and then decided to actually look into what the laws were to see, can somebody under 18 get vaccinated? So Jane, you got into some really fascinating issues in your piece, uh, including exactly what the legal issues are for teenagers who might want to get vaccinated. Can you talk a little bit about that? What I found was that there's no federal laws that relate to vaccines. It's all done by state. And there are some states that allow teens to get vaccinated in specific circumstances and for specific vaccines. So, for instance, I, I pointed out in the piece that Minnesota allows minors to get vaccinated for hepatitis B, and California allows minors from the age of 12 to get vaccinated for hepatitis B and HPV. In some other states, there are laws that refer to general medical care. In Alabama, a minor could consent to this at age 14, and, and in Oregon, they could consent at age 15. But these are all you know, in very specific cases. In general, minors can consent to medical care if they are emancipated. And one really interesting thing is if a, if a minor has a child of their own, in most cases, they can consent for themselves to be vaccinated and that child. So you could have a 16-year-old who has a, who has a child who can consent to get vaccinated, but a 16-year-old who doesn't have a child can't make that decision. There's also this idea of what we call a mature minor, where a doctor can sort of make a call on if they determine that a minor is mature enough to make uh, a decision for what they say is low-risk care. And normally that's used in cases of reproductive health, but when I spoke to Allison Winnicky, the president and CEO of the Immunization Partnership, which is a nonprofit that is focused on eradicating vaccine-preventable diseases, she told me the mature minor is sort of like a code for emancipation. Not, not in the legal sense, but when a doctor is making that decision, they're going to kind of look at, you know, is a minor living on their own? Are they financially independent? And those sorts of things. Right, right. And just from a reporting perspective, was it difficult to get teenagers to open up to you? I mean, almost by definition, this is something that they're doing at odds with what their parents want them to do. So I reached out to three teenagers and Ethan Lindenberger, who everybody knows now from the story, he was really open about talking with me. Um, at first, he didn't really want his mom to find out about the story, which didn't work out that way. And I did talk to another teenager who is still under 18 who requested to remain anonymous. So yeah, I think most teenagers probably wouldn't want to speak out about it, but I'm, I'm really glad that Ethan was willing to share with me. And so in the, in this story, you, you talked to Ethan, who is 18, from Ohio. His mom, and it sounds like his dad to a lesser extent, didn't want to have him vaccinated. And he's decided on his own when, when he was 18 to, to go ahead and do that. And in the article, you talk about his decision-making process. So, so Jane... Uh, I know, you know, no matter how prepared someone might be for being the subject of a news article, um, it's different once the piece is actually published. What was Ethan's reaction to this coming out? Yeah, um, I actually asked him about this, so um, I'll let him speak for himself. Hey, Ethan, how's it going? Hey, it's going all right. How are you doing? Good. Uh, so it's been a few weeks since we first connected to talk about your decision to get vaccinated. And since we first published the story in Undark, it's really taken on a life of its own. With all of the follow-up interviews from the Washington Post to Fox to CNN and even the Today Show and Good Morning America, how do you feel about the way that the, the story has grown and changed compared to the way that it was first reported? Yeah, even like by the title of the original 
ways that the news and the media was presenting the story um, drastically, you know, shaped depending on who had their hands on it. I know when uh, Undark first reported the story, you know, and uh, the article was titled Coming of Age Unvaccinated and talked about the issues with kind of uh, going against the parental figure's authority to pursue vaccinations um, was a lot more tame. Some of the other articles were saying stuff like, oh, teenage attacks, like teen to attacks mom or teenager like defies mother and gets vaccinated and um, or gets all of his shots for his 18th birthday. And so a lot of it was very uh, exaggerated for sure. That's really that's fascinating. That's a fascinating sort of look at the science news ecosystem and how you take a piece like yours that was very sort of judicious and fair-minded and presented everything in a way that certainly was not sensationalistic, and then how quickly that that can change once other people start re-reporting it. What were some of the ways that that your story was then taken and disseminated by by other news sources? My piece really, you know, was focused on on the legal aspect and it was really the the dynamic of Ethan and his mom and some of the, the quotes that I got from her that, you know, people really latched onto. So once my story ran, I think then it got picked up by NPR and the Washington Post, and then um, Ethan got asked to be on TV news. And so it got condensed a lot more to, to really just focusing on, you know, the differences in opinion between he and his mom and, and sort of framing it in a way as, you know, him going against his his family's wishes or defying them. And, and really, you know, he just saw it as he's making a an educated decision backed by fact. And, and he was doing something that was not only in his own best interest, but in the best interest of others as well. And so, yeah, I don't, I don't think that he saw it as being as big of a deal as uh, some of the other news outlets framed it. Right. In, in shrinking it down, you got some of that on the one hand. On the other hand, which which is one of the ways that I think people end up believing things for which there's no evidence. And also, his, you know, his mom is pretty direct and upfront about how she feels like this is really kind of a, a slap in the face to her. What, what was it like talking to, to Ethan's mom? It was really interesting. So she did have her oldest daughter vaccinated, and then she started vaccinations with her oldest son, um, and then found out from someone that she could opt out. And so she told me she started researching on her own. She read a lot of things. She read books that were both for vaccines and against vaccines, and in the middle. And she talked to friends as well. Um, and she actually told me that she had um, a friend who believed that their two children had been injured by vaccines and both developed autism. Yeah, and that's been one of the more persistent claims, and we know that there is actually no evidence of that. There have been huge omnibus court cases that have looked at that, and the rulings have been overwhelming that there's absolutely no evidence that the MMR vaccine causes autism or any autism-like conditions. Yeah. Um, so she told me that she had sort of came to the conclusion, um, as she put it, that it was not a black and white issue and that for her family, that it was a best decision not to have them vaccinated. And she said that really what hurt her was that, you know, she had put in all of this time um, and effort into researching over the years and that when Ethan 
decided to get himself vaccinated, he didn't come and talk to her about why she had made that decision for them. He just went to talk to his doctor and made the decision on his own. And she really felt like that was disrespectful to her. But I do just want to emphasize that when Ethan's mom says that there are two sides to this, there really aren't respected medical authorities who share that view. They're the single most tested medical intervention that we have. And now, because they've been used for decades and decades, they've been tested literally on on tens of millions of people that not only are they incredibly safe, but obviously they protect against a range of infectious diseases, some of which can be deadly. If someone with measles is in a room and then leaves the room 30 minutes later, and sometimes even more than that, if someone without immunity comes into the room, there's a 90% chance that that person will get infected. And we've really learned and seen how contagious measles is over the past couple of years. There have been outbreaks around the country of hundreds and hundreds of cases, all in areas where there are pockets of unvaccinated people. It really highlights how not getting vaccinated is a decision that carries with it real risks um, and real public health costs. There have been analyses that containing a single case of measles costs over $10,000. Yeah, and just something I wanted to bring up on a um, more personal note here is that the mumps component of the MMR vaccine is less effective at about 88%. So we actually had an outbreak at the University of Wisconsin-Madison when I was a student there, and I got infected. And as much as people say, you know, these are these diseases are just part of childhood and that they're mild, that was a really horrible experience for me. I couldn't eat, I couldn't really lift my head or swallow very well for a few days, Um, and the the swelling was really painful. And the cases at my school were in vaccinated students, but I think it's important to remember that the majority of people were protected. Before vaccination started in the 60s, according to the CDC, 186,000 cases were reported each year, and now annual cases max out at about a few thousand per year. And I don't really want to think about how bad things could have gotten if we had a large population of unvaccinated students living in close quarters at the university like we were. But going back to the measles, the MMR vaccine is 97% effective for that. And before we had the vaccine, there were were three to four million cases per year. And I don't think that's something that we want to go back to. In some ways, vaccines have been a victim of their own success because they have succeeded in countries like the United States, making these diseases like polio and and measles and, and rubella almost distant memories. Something that has changed since my book came out is that when I was researching my book and and then even in the couple years after that, for the most part, the anti-vaccine community was really focused overwhelmingly in in, um, communities that had been affected by autism, either families who knew someone uh, or had a family member who who was affected by autism. And it sounds like Ethan's family and a lot of the families that you're referencing in the piece have sort of come of age in a different environment where the anti-vaccine kind of sentiments and, and have spread through social media or, or other means. And so now, even if they have no connection with someone who they think has been harmed by vaccines, uh, they're deciding not not to vaccinate. Is that is that accurate? Is that what you, you found in talking to people? Yeah, I think some of it does come from personal stories, but also there's a lot that comes from social media. There's a lot of Facebook groups that sort of push this anti-vaccine message or 
more so purport it to be an issue of medical freedom. They don't want vaccines to be mandated and they want to be able to still have those philosophical or religious exemptions. And so I think a lot of that really sort of reinforces their view. And when you're in these Facebook groups and you're just speaking to other people who have the same views, then I think it you know it really creates that sort of insular community. Yeah, I, I had one pediatrician once say to me that getting vaccinated is a purely personal decision the way drunk driving is a purely personal decision. You know, obviously it's not something that just affects you if, if you end up with one of these diseases. By far, the most difficult and painful conversations I had were with parents whose children had been infected and in some cases died and and they were too young to get vaccinated. So these were not parents who decided not to vaccinate their kids, but parents whose children in all likelihood were infected with a vaccine preventable disease in the pediatrician's office and then in several cases died. Two other questions. One, um, you know, you obviously know this is a very emotional topic, a, a hot button topic. Um, just as a journalist, as a reporter going into this, did you have any hesitation? Did you think at all like, you know, maybe this is not something I want to wade into? My life is, is, is busy enough without needing to deal with all of the anger and invective that comes with covering this type of story. No, I, I didn't have any hesitation. I sort of knew that I might get some um, some backlash and negative comments, but I thought it was a really important thing to talk about. And I think it's been a, a really important story. And, and with how widespread it's gotten, it's really created a lot of discussion uh, among other teens and their parents about you know whether they can actually get vaccinated and sort of just empowered them, I think, to, to take that into their own hands a little bit more. Have you learned all of the new ways that you uh, are being funded by Big Pharma? (laughs) Yeah, I did see one um, Twitter post that was trying to link the Knight Foundation, which funds Undark, to the CDC and the Gates Foundation and sort of creating all of these links and um, yeah, so I thought that that was sort of interesting. But overall, I haven't I haven't received a ton of comments um, aimed directly at me. I think most Ethan has really taken most of the heat right, um, right. from what I've seen. Yeah, it was it, it was certainly it was courageous of him to to speak out like this. Has he talked at all about a positive effect this may have had on on other teens or sort of creating a space where? teens who have not been vaccinated can start to have those conversations? Yeah, definitely. He, he's told me he's uh, gotten a lot of people reaching out on Reddit and through other channels, you know, thanking him for speaking out, either people who have, you know, also grew up unvaccinated, even people over the age of 18, I think people in their 20s who were still afraid to get vaccinated. And, and one important point that he makes is, you know, there's a lot of, um, a lot of comments saying why does it why is this a story he's 18 but he you know he's pointed out that just because somebody's 18 doesn't mean that they're financially independent doesn't mean that there's no repercussions from their family for you know making this sort of decision and and so even people who are older than him are finding if they still live with their parents they might not be able to make that decision to get vaccinated for fear of actually being kicked out of the house or other things like that but yeah he's definitely 
you know, noticed some positive impacts, and he's actually gotten asked to be on a, a panel in September from the American Academy of Pediatrics to sort of talk about this. Uh, that's great. Yeah, I mean, the the, the fact that, that he's over 18, first of all, it, it obviously doesn't change the emotional component of needing to do something that's against your parents' wishes, but also it's a way to talk about these issues for people who are, who are under 18. I thought he did a, a really, you and he did a really valuable service in, in that regard. And that actually leads me into another question. Did you talk with Ethan at all? Do you know whether this piece and the reaction to it affected his mom at all? Did she re-examine any of her assumptions? Yeah, I also asked him about this. So um, I have another clip to play for you. And from, you know, dealing with this sort of on a, a daily basis at home, has talking about this helped you sort of come to any conclusions about how to better reach people who hold these sorts of views about vaccination? Yeah, um, part of it's very pessimistic and part of it's very um, uh, realistic in a way for me where it's like people don't necessarily always want to change their mind. And some people are just set in their ways when it comes to stuff like this. And, you know, I think at this point I've concluded that my mom is like that. Um, you know, even publicly, she's continued to share the same information that I've tried to, like, beg her to analyze because it's just so questionable on an ethical level, on a, um, you know, on, on a journalistic level. Like, the, the information she's getting is just so bogus. And... Part of part of it is like I've kind of gotten some. That, yeah, that, that's so fascinating. I, I when my, my book came out in two thousand eleven, um, and within a year of of when it was published, uh, Andrew Wakefield, the person who really started um, the modern day vaccine scares, um, he lost his medical license because of some really heinous experiments he was uh, conducting on children, including at his son's birthday party. Um, and the original paper uh, that that uh, that posited that there was some connection between the MMR vaccine um, and vaccine injuries and autism was withdrawn, um, uh, and there was evidence of fraud there. And I sort of thought at the time, well, okay, I guess my book will be this nice historical document, but now this will end this debate. Um, and I think what Ethan just said is a really fascinating illustration of how when people and there's a, a, a there have been a lot of studies on this um, when people believe in a conspiracy evidence factual evidence to the contrary most of the time only ends up uh, leaving them more convinced that the conspiracy is is actually happening that their original opinion is correct and it sounds like that's definitely what what happened with Ethan's mom here yeah, um, so even after the, the story came out and, it, and with all of the different coverage, um, I know she definitely felt like it wasn't um, presenting her side of things in an accurate light. And she, um, yeah, it was clear that she, you know, she had doubled down in her views. And, and she'd even said to me that this whole process with Ethan getting vaccinated has made it all the more important that she talk to her younger children before they be, they come of age so that she can make sure they understand why she didn't get them vaccinated and make sure, that, how, as she says it, make sure they're educated um, before they make the decision on their own. Right. Yeah. 
Um, well, Jane, thank you so much both for writing this piece. I think it's a it's a really uh, important piece, and on a subject like this that has been that has gotten a lot of coverage o- over the last five or ten years, um, it's it's pretty unusual that you see a piece that really comes at it in an entirely new way. Uh, and your piece definitely definitely did that. Um, I think it did a great service. So thank you for that, and and thank you for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thank you so much, and I, I really hope that it continues to generate discussion. Thank you for listening, Undark fans. That's all for this month. We're produced by Lydia Chain. Music is by the Undark team. Music in Randy Scott Carroll's piece was by himself and Thomas Cleary. I'm your host, Kasha Patel. Talk to you next month.